Well, good evening. Good to see you tonight. If somebody can grab our back door back there for us, I'd appreciate that. It's good to see everybody. Hope that you've had a good week, and we're looking forward to our study tonight in Second or other First Peter chapter two. We'll look at the first eight verses. So, those of you joining us online, we welcome you also wherever you are and however you're joining us, and looking forward to what God is going to say to us through His His life giving Word tonight. So, let's pray together, and we'll get started. Father, I want to thank you tonight for the opportunity to teach your Word, to read it, study it, meditate upon it. Father, just let it wash over us and make us into the people you want us to be. So, Father, I pray tonight that you, uh, you would be our teacher, the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. God, we thank you for Jesus, what he means for us and means to us. And, Father, I just pray that this passage tonight will be something that relates to us just as it related to the, those in the first century as they lived out their faith for Jesus. May it relate to us as well. Give us insight and, again, shape us into the people that you want us to be. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for those people who are here tonight, those joining us online, and pray your blessings upon them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, turn with me, 1 Peter chapter 2 tonight. We continue with our series entitled Culture Shock, looking verse by verse at uh, 1 Peter and what Peter, the disciple of the Lord that followed him for three and a half years, had to say to the believers there. So just as a reminder of what's going on, it's been about 33 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, some Gentiles believed in Jesus. They, are, they live up around the area of uh, Pontius, uh, Bithynia. It's uh, just south of the Black Sea. It's modern-day Turkey. They most likely were at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was crucified. Peter preached the sermon mentioned there in Acts chapter 2. Most likely they got saved. They went back up to where they lived, started a church, it spread, Christianity did. So they have a small church there up in that region of about six provinces. And so, so they're up there. It's been about 30 years or so. And, and the culture does not understand the Christian faith. They oppose it. There's subtle persecution going on. Persecution had not become formal yet like it did later in the Roman Empire. That'd be about 75 years from now before that happened. Nor had it become fatal. People really weren't dying for their faith yet. On occasion, but not really by and large for the most part. Most of the uh, discrimination was of the subtle kind. Social persecution, marginalization, uh, verbal abuse, mistreatment, uh, things like that. Pretty much the, the, what we, we accept today in our culture for being Christians. Sometimes Christians are discriminated against. Sometimes we're marginalized. Uh, social persecu persecution a little bit, maybe some verbal abuse. So we, we were in the same boat pretty much as they were, much like, much like we are today. So Peter wrote to them, and so that's why I think the book really does relate to you and I. How do we live out our faith in our culture same way they were to live it out in theirs? So Peter wrote this letter to them kind of to try to stabilize them, stabilize the Christians there in a culture that was marginalizing them. And so he, first of all, said there are some things you need to remember and there are some things you need to do. So chapter 1 was pretty much about what do you need to remember. Here's what you need to remember as a believer in your culture. And he mentioned some of those. Remember that you are born again to a living hope. Remember that your salvation can never be lost. It is reserved in heaven. It is being guarded there for you. You can't be lost again. 
Remember, God is allowing you to go through trials for a reason. Um, your faith is being refined, just like gold is refined. Remember that the Old Testament prophets foretold what you're going through. Remember, you have to set your minds for action where you are. Set your hope on Christ in the culture in which you live. Remember, you got to be set apart from the culture, just holy, just as God was holy and set apart from His creation. Remember, you were not redeemed with perishable items like silver and gold, but with the precious and the spotless and the blood of Christ that's without blemish. Remember that. Remember, this was God's plan before the foundation of the world, what you're going through. And Remember that the flowers fade and the grass withers, but the Word of God stands forever. So those are some of the things he said I want you to remember as you try to live out your faith in, your cult, in this culture. And then chapter 2, we pick up tonight, he starts to say, here are some things now you need to do. For the first time, we start getting imperatives. Imperatives are commands. So uh, chapter 1 is about the cognitive domain. Here's some, some things to remember and now starting in chapter 2, it's the action domain. Here are some things, as believers, you need to do. And so as we relate it to our, our culture today as well, here are some things we need to do as believers as we live out our faith. So, in tonight's passage, first eight verses, Peter used four images of the Christian life. He used the image of taking off a coat, and putting it away, a dirty coat. Uh, he used, secondly, the image of a newborn baby. Thirdly, he used the image of building a temple or a building. And then the fourthly, he used the image of serving like a priest. So let's look at those images and see what he has to say as we can relate it to our, our day today. First of all, verse 1, letter A on your outline, putting away some attitudes. Number one, putting away some attitudes. Now, I know with this group tonight, we never get an attitude, so we're probably talking to other people, but there are some attitudes, he says, that sometimes you need to put away. Look at verse 1. So, some translations say, therefore, in other words, based on everything I told you in chapter 1, so, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now let's talk about these for a moment. Let's stop right there because there's a lot just in verse 1 of the actions that we need to, to be a part of. So Peter began the second chapter with, uh, by reminding them of their identity in Christ and now what you need to do about it in the midst of your culture. The first word he uses is put away. Now it's two words in English. It's only one word in Greek. It's a compound word. It's the word tithemi in Greek, but the prefix apo, which means send something away. So he said, put away these attitudes like you would lay aside a dirty garment or a soiled garment, a dirty jacket. You come in, you're filthy, you've got a jacket on, you've been working or whatever, it's filthy, you don't want to get your house dirty, you walk in the back and you just take it off immediately so you don't get anything else dirty. That's the concept. There are some actions and attitudes, a part of who you are, is what he's telling them. You need to take off like a dirty coat before he gets anything else dirty and just drop it right where it is. Now, 
This could have been, some Bible scholars believe, a reference to baptism. You say, how? How to baptism? Well, he uses the analogy of a garment, which um, Peter used the metaphor of clothing a lot. You'll see that as we go throughout the rest of this. But for some reason, he liked to use clothes as an illustration about different things. But baptism in those days, um, it was a symbol of your old life being abandoned, put away. They also would baptize in those days naked. Now, I'm glad we don't do that today, but they did in those days because it was symbolic. It was symbolic of your old dirty life being taken off, and you would drop your clothes and you would go into the waters, symbolic of a clean new life. So the symbolism was there. So most of the time they would baptize naked in the early church. So some Bible scholars see this as a reference to just as you took off your clothes symbolically at baptism. So now do that again with those bad attitudes you sometimes get. So he could have been saying, put into practice what you confessed at your baptism. Because it, because it was a clothes reference and it was a baptism reference as well. Now... As he goes to what attitudes you need to put away or take off like dirty clothes, he mentions five of them here, verse 1. The first two are attitudes, malice and deceit, and the other three are actions, uh, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So all of these, all five of these are incompatible with being a loving Christian, if you think about it. If these five are a part of your life, my life, they keep me from being the loving believer I need to be, the loving Christian I need to be. So let's look at these five. Dr. David says, quote, these five are not the most perverse sins you'll ever commit. They're not the most gross sins in the Christian faith. But, he says, they are community destroyers. And they are. You look at all five. They're community destroyers. And he said, these are often tolerated in many churches. They are. I mean, we're not going to kick somebody out of the church if they have malice. Or if they're deceitful. Or if they're a little hypocritical here or there. Or if they are envy. Or if they talk more than they should. We don't, we don't kick them out of the church. Many churches tolerate these. Peter says we should get rid of them like a dirty garment. Now let's look at some of these. First of all, the word malice. It's the word kakia in Greek. K-A-K-I-A. It is a desire to injure. It's uh, it sometimes translated just evil in some uh, translations in in the New Testament. It means to injure someone, to trouble someone. But listen to this. It also means being unashamed to break laws. Now think of their culture. Might they be unashamed to break some of the laws that the government was passing? 
that they really thought was discriminatory against their faith or marginalized who they were. And, well, they're going to get at us. I don't mind just going around and breaking a few of these. It sounds like some of our people today, doesn't it? Well, the government's doing this and that. I, I'm okay if I don't do this or that. And that's one of the implications of the word tekia. Was that taking place there? We don't know. But for some reason, he used the word kekia first in that church. Something was going on. Secondly, he uses the word deceit. It's the word that means guile or trickery. Why would that be a problem? As Knowing what you know about that church, it's up there on the Black Sea. Culture, yes, is starting to discriminate. It's been about 33 years since Jesus has gone back to heaven. Why, why would get, trickery, deceit, be a problem in that early church? And then he goes on to hypocrisy, and it's just what you know. It literally means two-faced, being one person one way and another person at another time. And the word envy, it's the word here of, uh, of uh, literally means just what we know it to be today, but of, of whom would they be envious in those days? Can you imagine a scenario in that culture where are they envious of non-believers or are they envious of what they get that they that the Christians don't get or what are they envious are they envious of, of one another in the church but it was one of the first five things he mentioned that envy was a problem and then he uses the word slander and and this is the most interesting word he uses it's the word lelos which we get the word glossolalia from it means it means your tongue with the prefix kata, which you put kata, lalia together, it's, it means evil-tongued. It means speaking against somebody. It means backbiting. It means talking behind somebody's back. It's only mentioned twice in the Bible. That word is used twice in the Bible. It's mentioned here, 1 Peter 2, and it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians twelve twenty, where backbiting was a problem in the church at Corinth. It's the idea not of cursing or profane speech. It's the idea of spicy or hurtful speech. So it's not that they're cursing and being profane. It's that they're talking about one another behind each other's backs. Do you do that? Do you think it's not that bad of a sin? I think we can all do that at times. So, take note of these five because it was a problem in the church. It can be a problem in our church. So, put away like a, like a dirty garment. Get rid of it so it doesn't stain everybody else around you. Malice, that, that unashamedness of breaking laws and of injuring others. Deceit, hypocrisy, envying one another. And backbiting so he really starts hitting hard doesn't he right after he says remember these things in chapter one now he says here are some things you need to do and he gets right after it right away so let's look at verse two letter b on your outline growing up into your salvation verses two and three growing up into your salvation verse two 
like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, after he talked about five negatives, now verse 2 he talks about some positives. Here are some positive things you need to do. Since you have been born again like a newborn baby, do those things babies do as newborn infants. Now that's an interesting analogy. Not many, many biblical writers use the analogy of a newborn baby to describe a Christian. Jesus obviously does with the new birth, but Peter and Jesus, that's, that's about it. So we are born again, and that's how we come into the faith. Babies need milk, and so he's telling us, just as babies crave milk, you crave the Word. Now, wait a second. Got a question. Why is he saying this 33 years after they got saved? He should have said it three months after they got saved. Why 33 years? He finally says, crave the, the pure milk of the word like a newborn infant. They're not newborn infants. They're 33 years old. If they had been saved at Pentecost... Why is he still addressing them like that? Had it been that for 33 years they're still babes in Christ? Wow, why? And after our salvation for as long as it's been, why are we still babes in Christ? Have you been saved 33 years but you don't know anything more about the Word than you knew 20 years ago? Why not? We need to be growing. We need to be learning more of the Bible, more of the doctrines that are there, more of the spiritual truth, maybe better than we do. And so maybe that's a word to us. Maybe we keep excusing the same attitudes and the same actions because we never really have grown in our faith. Hopefully, if you were saved 33 years ago, some of you longer than that, you are very mature in your faith, like a 30-year-old. But if you still see a 33-year-old man or woman today drinking nothing but milk, there's a problem. Their growth is stunted, and there's something wrong. So evaluate your own spiritual life. How long have you been saved tonight? Figure up the years. And am I really on the meat of the word now? Or do I still just kind of on the basics of what the Bible's all about and the basics of what's taught there? Or have I really advanced on the meat? And so ask yourself that question. If tonight you're honest and you say, no, I'm probably still on milk, the very basics of what the Bible's about then make a commitment to advance onto the meat of the Word and know this book better and read it more and study it more and get helps. There are all kind of helps out there to help you understand this book and grow in your faith. That just struck me as odd that he would tell somebody who had been saved 33 years 
like newborn infants long for that pure spiritual milk. Now, the phrase long for is really interesting. We'll spend most of our time on the first three verses here and then look at the last few before we close. But look at the word for long for. It's one of the strongest expressions in our passage tonight. It's one of the strongest words that's used. Long for here is emphatic. Peter's using a word that he puts prefix, a prefix with it to make it even stronger. It's the word pothio, but he puts epi with it, which makes it one of the strongest words he uses here. Long for. So in other words, he's saying, you should have a, such a desire for God's word, it's consuming the word, the word long for, it means to yearn, it means to crave something. It means to be possessed. It means to be obsessed. You ever known somebody just obsessed with something? That's all they talk about, that's all they do, they can't get enough of it? Be that way about the word. It's a word that means to lust. To lust after something. Lusting after the Bible, you, you can't get enough of it. In the Septuagint, it's the word used for man's deepest longing. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 42 where it says, As the deer pants for the living waters, so my soul pants for you. It's the word panting, breathing short breaths because you're so excited and looking for something so desperately. Does that describe... Does that describe your desire for the word? The word pure, desire the pure spiritual milk. It's the word that means undiluted, it means unmixed. And the word milk is interesting. One of the few times in the Bible that the Bible is referred to as milk. Now, milk was a symbol for life in the early church. Clement of Alexandria wrote about milk as being compared to the blood of Jesus and bringing life. So milk was an analogy. Some people even still see the reference to baptism again here because there were some that believed and some Bible scholars that believed that at your baptism you would take off your clothes and you would put them aside and you'd go into the waters and afterwards you'd come out, you'd put clothes back on and there would be an initiation rite where you tasted milk and you tasted honey. And you did that as a symbol of the new land or the, milk, the land of milk and honey that you're going into now as a new believer. There's some that believe that it's still a reference to the baptism with the milk. We don't know, but for some reason he mentioned milk as, as the Bible. Not very many did that. Listen to Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby said, said, it is sad when Christians have no appetite for the Word of God. And they have to be fed religious entertainment in worship instead. So, as you grow, I hope that you will discover the Word as milk and as meat. Now, when healthy babies crave milk, we know everything's good, right? When things are right, you don't have to coerce a baby to drink milk. They do it naturally. They love it. If something's wrong with the baby, they don't want the milk. In fact, sometimes you take them to a pediatrician. They, won't, they, they don't want milk. Something's wrong. 
And so I think we can somehow use the same analogy that whenever we really don't have a desire to read or study the Word of God, I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. But notice he says at the end of verse 2 that you may grow up into your salvation. Have you ever thought of your salvation as being something you need to grow into? See, I never did. I'll be honest. Whenever I was saved at nine years old, I didn't, I didn't think salvation was something you grow up into. I just thought it's something you did and you made a decision one time and you went on. I thought it was something you came forward and you talked to the pastor and you prayed to receive Christ. And after that, they baptized you. And after that, you remember. And that's all you needed to do. You kept going to church. And that's all you needed to do. You didn't really grow up into anything. You've taken care of everything. You're set for heaven. I didn't really see it as something you actually grew into. But that's what he said. Grow up into your salvation. You should know more this time next year than you know tonight. And you should know more and act better the following year than you do next year. It's something that you grow. Now you're saved, don't get me wrong, but you grow in your faith. And you should never tire of the simple truths of the gospel as you do. And notice how you grow in your faith. Did you catch that? It's the Word of God. It's how you grow in it. The better you know this, the more you grow. Then verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. A couple of interesting words there. It's kind of a picture of Psalm 33. You remember what Psalm 33 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what Peter's saying. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Two words that are interesting, verse 3. Number one is the word taste. It's the word guamai. It means to try the flavor. Experience something. You ever tell somebody, have you ever tried this flavor? Have you ever tried that flavor? Oh, you ought to try that. It's good. If you like this, you'll like that. And so he's saying here about the Lord, try them and see. Experience the flavor. You'll like him. And then the second word that's interesting is the word good. It's not the normal word for good in the New Testament. It's a word that means gracious, but also a word that means pleasant and mild. Boy, that's something we really want in Texas, isn't it? These mild temperatures, supposed to be Saturday, it's going to be in the 50s, and then what, high in the 60s, they're saying. And isn't that going to be pleasant? It's nice after a long, hot, parching summer to get mild weather and pleasant temperatures. It's the exact wording that the Lord himself is something that can refresh your spirit. He's good. Taste and see that the Lord is good and experience the mild, pleasant life of God in you. So it's an, it's an interesting image that he uses here as he writes, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, the time that we have left, let's look at verses 4 through 8. Letter C on your outline, building up your spiritual house. He now goes to the third image tonight, taking off the old garment. So newborn baby is a second image. Now the third one of building a house, or building a structure, building a temple. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, let's talk about verse 4 for a moment. Not only is Jesus our sustenance, like milk, he is also our foundation. Now, Peter changes his analogy from growing to building. He also changes it from individuals to corporate. Now he's talking to the church. He's not talking to individual in church. He's talking to the whole church. And he uses the phrase, a living stone. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? Stones don't live. Stones aren't alive. They're dead. They're inanimate. So he uses an oxymoron as one phrase, coming to Jesus as a living stone. He makes, he uses a figure of speech joining two unrelated terms to make a point. And the point is, Jesus is the church's foundation and your foundation, but he's alive. He's not dead like a rock. He's alive. He's a living stone. So, he uses, first of all, Jesus as the living stone, and then he calls you living stones. So, we get our vitality from the relationship we have with Jesus. He is the living stone. We are the living stones of the living stone because we get our life in Him. Now, here's something interesting. They had two different words that they used for stones back in those days. Uh, one, because the stone we're talking about is not a little pebble. We're talking about these huge, massive rocks that they would build structures with. If you've ever been to Israel and, and seen some of the massive rocks that they have that they built their buildings with, you go, wow, how in the world do they do that with, without modern technology? It kind of blows your mind. If you go to the corner of Herod's uh, old temple there in Jerusalem, it's still there, and you see the cornerstone in that, it's massive. And so he's talking about one of those large stones that they would, would, would use. They had two words for it. One word was one that was rough and uncut, one that you may find out before you did anything to it to try to shape it for a building. Second word they used was for one that was finished out, ready to place in the structure, and they had two different words they used. The word Peter uses here to describe Jesus as a living stone is not the one that's rugged and uncut. It's the one that's already been cut and positioned and ready to place in the building. Jesus has already been through the death, burial, and resurrection. Now he is your foundation ready to go up. Biblical days, builders would chisel huge blocks of stone to support large buildings. And some of the Old Testament writers then would compare God to some of these massive foundation stones. They did that in Deuteronomy 32. They did it in Psalm 18. Psalm 62, Jesus did that, Matthew 7, Matthew 16, and Peter does it here. Go to verse 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A couple points about verse 5. First of all, did you notice he said, you like living stones are being built up. He didn't say build yourself up. He, you're being built up. So in other words, 
The Christian life is nothing that you do to grow yourself. You do what God's called you to do, read his word, be faithful, serve, and he will do the growing. He will grow you. You're being built up. You're not building yourself up. You're being built up into, he said, a a living stone. Then he says, as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood. Now, what were priests in the Bible? They were these men that would go to God for you. You would go to the priest, they would go to God for you. Roman Catholic Church has it, same concept. You go to the priest, they go to God. You don't go, you can't go to God directly, they say. You go to the priest, priest goes to God. But now Peter, who the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, says was the first pope. Peter says, you are the holy priesthood. You as believers are priests before God. You don't need to come to a priest to go to God. You can go to God. You can pray. You can repent. You can confess. You can ask for direction. You can ask for guidance. You don't need me to pray for you. I'm, I'm happy to pray for you. I'm happy to pray with you. But you don't need that to go to God. You're the priesthood. We believe as Baptists, as in evangelicals, in what's called priesthood of the believer. Every believer is a priest before God. Peter echoes the same the sentiment here. That's where we get it from. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices. Back in biblical days, the laity could not offer sacrifices. Only priests could do that. But now, as a priest before God, you can offer sacrifices directly to God yourself. Why? Because Jesus Christ passed through the heavens, Hebrews says, as our great high priest. So if you're in Christ, you're a priest. He's the great high priest, and you're a priest. So you don't have, that's why we don't call pastors priests. Pastors are shepherds. We want to, we, our job is to shepherd you. But as far as going to God, you can do that yourself because you are the holy priesthood. Now, let's look at 6, 7, and 8 right quick before we close. In verses 6, 7, and 8, you'll probably notice in your Bible that it's offset like poetry. And the reason is Peter is quoting the Old Testament. And he quotes three Old Testament passages, boom, 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 right in a row. So let's look at it. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, let's talk about this for a moment before we close. First of all, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16. That is the first one. Verse 6 is a quote of Isaiah 28, 16. 
He says that we're laying in Zion, that's Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, a stone, that's the cornerstone, and that would be Christ. The cornerstone, as you know, that is the main stone that the building rests upon. It's not the keystone. The keystone is the last stone that's put on after the building's all, all, all done and all finished. The very last stone the mason puts on top is the keystone. But the cornerstone is the first one. It's the foundation the entire building is laid upon. Now, this crossed my mind I thought was interesting. I wonder, Peter uses a lot of analogies here for several verses about stones and rocks. I wonder if um, Peter had in mind that moment in Matthew 16 when Jesus changed his name. Remember that? You remember in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. And I tell you that the keys of the kingdom are given to you. And then he goes on to say that your name is being changed from Petros, little stone, to Petra, or rock. Because no longer are you this small faith man, Peter. Now, because of your confession, you're going to be this huge, massive rock, this boulder. And he did turn out to be that, by the way. And so, Jesus had a play on words concerning rocks and Peter's name. And I wonder now if he had that in mind as he starts writing about rocks and stones. Maybe so. And he says, whoever believes in this cornerstone will never be disappointed. And the word never there is emphatic. Ume, it's never. Strongest negative in the Bible will never be disappointed. So he kind of has two analogies in view here. We rest upon Christ as the building upon the foundation, and then we as other stones relate to one another and support one another in the structure. So he's writing to the church. We are upon the, Christ as the living stone, but we as living stones bind together to form the building of Christ. Did you notice the word precious is used twice here? He called Jesus precious. Not many people in the Bible called Jesus precious. Peter did. I wonder if it had something to do with the three and a half years he followed the Lord 24-7 was with him all the time and he saw this moral purity about the life of Christ that he knew was just stellar and he keeps calling him precious call his blood precious Charles Spurgeon preached his first sermon when he was 16 years old he preached it in a little village in a small little cottage just a few handful of poor people in the cottage and he preached his first sermon right there at 16 years old and the very first text he used is used was first peter chapter 2 verse 7 where it talks about rather verse 6 where he's talking about jesus being chosen and precious and he said quote i didn't think there was any other passage i could preach on because the only word I could think of at 16 years old when I got saved was how precious he was to my soul. And I would not be silent 
when a precious subject like Jesus was to be preached. So, he used the word precious in his very first sermon. And then we look at verse 8, verse 7. Of course, he quotes Psalm 118, 22. Stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then we go to verse 8 to close. He uses a third verse, Isaiah 8, 14. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus, to many, was a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. As you know, the religious leaders did not accept him as Messiah, and so he was a stone of stumbling for them. So, to recap, Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone from Psalm 118, the stumbling stone of Isaiah 8, the foundation stone of Isaiah 28, and then later on, Daniel says he is the supernatural stone. And then first Paul talks in 1 Peter how Jesus is the rock that gave Israel water in the wilderness. So Jesus, the word, the word stone is used a lot to describe him. But I want you to notice one last phrase before we close. As people stumble over this stone or fail to receive Jesus as Savior, notice at the end of verse 8 it says they stumble because they disobey the word. Look at the last phrase. As they were destined to do. So is that Calvinism? Does that mean that there are some people out there that would love to be saved but can't be saved because they're destined to stumble over Jesus? Well, that's how some people interpret it. I am not a Calvinist. I think there are too many whosoever's in Scripture. And that God makes the offer to anyone to come. He does know who's going to choose him, absolutely. He foreknows for sure. But what's kind of interesting as you look at the phrase, as they were destined to do. Let me just give you a quick summary as to why I don't believe it's talking about predestination as we know it. In the Greek text, the antecedent to the phrase, to this, he's talking about there, iso, is the main verb, stumble as it is in our English text here. Disobedient is a participle that's subordinate to the main verb. Therefore, we would expect to this to refer to the main verb, stumble, but it refers to disobedient. Now, let me, let me summarize all that for you. What does that mean? It means God appoints those to stumble who stumble because of their unbelief. So, in other words... Their disobedience is not what God predestined. It was their penalty He predestined. When they stumbled over Christ, their penalty was the predestination. They were, they were predestined, if they did not receive Christ, to not be His. So that's what the predestined is. The disobedience, not what God predestined, it was the penalty for the disobedience that you see. Interesting, the Bible always places the responsibility for a person's destiny upon them for not believing in Jesus. So, God makes the offer, and I believe that we choose. But, Holy Spirit has to awaken us absolutely before we can choose Christ as well. So, those are some things that are very interesting as he goes through verse 8. Starting in verse 9 next week, he starts talking in more detail about the church, and I think that you'll find it to be interesting next Wednesday night. We'll pick up there.
verse 9. Let's pray together. We'll close. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for what Peter has encouraged us to do. And Father, it is my prayer tonight that if there is any malice, if there is any deceit or hypocrisy or envy or talking behind people's backs in our church, that God, we would, we would take those attitudes off like a filthy coat and drop them right where they are. God, I, I pray that every one of us will have a desire, a longing for, a hunger for your word. And God, if that not, hunger is not there tonight in someone, I pray that they would pray to you and ask you to put it there. And God, that you create in each one of us a desire and a thirst for, for this book. And then, Father, thank you for Jesus being the living stone and how we can have faith and trust in you. And you build us up as a, as a temple, as a holy priesthood. Father, may we walk that, in that even this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.